I just get really excited about about what does California actually taste like or wherever you would live in North America. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. From South Central Los Angeles, this is Adam Huss, and thank you so much for listening to this special Thanksgiving episode of the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to my guest for this episode, Matt Neese. As far as I know, this is Matt's first public interview about his winery slash cidery, North American Press which is a California winery dedicated to native and hybrid grapes, heirloom apples, and native ingredients. Matt forages wild grapes to blend with heirloom apples to make cider. He farms and makes wine from a small Baco Noir vineyard on the Sonoma coast that is own-rooted in clay below the fog line and is not tilled nor sprayed. And he's convincing vineyard owners to let him foot the bill to plant an array of hybrid grapes in valuable vineyard land. All of this takes a fair bit of courage. Matt is risking his livelihood on grapes and ideas that California has ignored and even shunned for over a century. He's asking difficult questions, and he's bravely willing to face the consequences of the unknown. Even doing this podcast was an act of courage for Matt, as you'll find out. Matt is willing to face these risks because the truth is, he isn't just making wine, he's on a mission to eliminate prejudice. Matt is breaking down prejudice against non-European grapes and wine flavors, prejudice against native plants and foods, and prejudice against the ways and wisdom of native peoples whose knowledge of the natural world may hold answers to some of the most urgent issues we're facing today. Once you've talked to Matt, it's hard to talk about terroir, or a sense of place in wine, grown in California and North America in general, without asking the questions he's asking. And it's become increasingly clear that asking these questions is necessary if we want to preserve biodiversity, get rid of our dependence on chemicals, survive extreme weather, and improve food security. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays because it's not associated with a religious or astronomical event. We just decided that it was worth taking a day to reflect gratefully on our lives. And we do that usually by gathering together with friends and family and feasting on, traditionally, native foods. Since there's no outside reason, it's actually those friends, family, and native foods that are effectively what we're celebrating. I think that's cool. This year we might not be able to be with our friends and family, but I hope this interview with Matt Neese helps to deepen your appreciation for the native foods and hopefully wines that will be part of your celebration. Enjoy, and happy Thanksgiving. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's really great to talk to you, and I have so much I want to ask you about. I'm just going through your Instagram, and it's like uh, it's sort of just introducing me to things that I haven't considered or knew about, and so I'm fascinated to talk to you about that kind of stuff. But um, how, you know, I want to start at the beginning. You, uh, where are you from? Where'd you come from? How'd you get into this? Well, I grew up in Southern California and was my dad was a fisherman my mom ran a seafood company down in san diego and so food and wild foods have always been just a a mainstay in my life and growing up like in high school when it was time to get a job i 
landed at a restaurant naturally just kind of through family connections and whatnot and so i my start in the in wine is really comes from food mm. and so yeah I, I mean that is one of the nice things about your instagram too is all the and we'll get into that but a, a lot of the uh the things that you're just foraging and making these beautiful dishes and and are you doing the photography for that as well yeah it's uh it's called portrait mode (laughs) okay (laughs) like you're brilliant man (laughs) it's called yeah it's my wife's fancy iphone yeah (laughs) nice oh yeah yeah enough memory on my phone to take a picture (laughs) so i have to take her phone and do all the photography (laughs) nice well as soon as i upgrade to a newer iphone maybe i'll be able to take nice photos (laughs) once again Um, um but yeah so i i started cooking really i I, I was interested in cooking growing up, but uh, I, I didn't know that it was something that I actually enjoyed doing. You know, I would watch Food Network and stuff growing up, and and but I landed a, a job in high school at a restaurant, and the position that was open was a line cook, and it could have very well been a busboy or you know um, a dishwasher, but it was a line cook, and so they trained me. And I worked in restaurants through high school. And then when I went to college in San Luis Obispo for structural engineering, I decided to just keep that resume and that experience to continue to cook through college as well. And so I worked at a lot of different restaurants in college. You know, it's kind of hard to balance school and and work so i would just work part-time at various places in in college and it really just turned into a passion and and more of a calling than just a job and eventually i had to come to terms with myself and decide like is food what i want to do or is engineering what i want to do and so i told myself well let's let's try engineering, you know, as a career, like I need to I put myself through, through school studying <laughs> it. So I should, I, sh- I should give it, give it a go like in the real world. And so I quit the restaurant industry and worked at an engineering firm for a while. And uh, I have a lot of respect for that field and for architects and engineers. And I think it's really still um, inspiring and something I really enjoy about it. But the, but I just, I can't sit in front of a computer all day. <laughs> I just have, yeah. you know, I have ADD and, and, and I'm just like, I have to be on my feet, like making something with my hands and being more creative, I guess. And that's just, and that's just me, my, like, just like my personality. I just, I just had to honor that and respect yeah. that. And so I thought that, towards the end of my restaurant career, I, I developed an interest in wine growing up or going to school in San Luis Obispo, just in the wine region in the central coast and Santa Barbara mm-hmm. and Edna Valley. And so I decided to take winemaking classes instead of going back into the restaurant industry, which is, it's also just a very physically demanding industry and it's, it's yeah. not an easy lifestyle for anyone that's, that has done it knows, you know, yeah. knows that firsthand and it's uh just the late nights and the it's yeah. The intensity too. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so I wanted something that I kind of, I liked the schedule of, of a more like a nine to five type of job, but I, I wanted to be doing something more in the food and wine world. And so I took winemaking classes and, and, uh, got an internship at Radio Coteau in Sebastopol in 2010 and, the rest is history, so to speak, but I, <laughs> I was there for nine years. So I, I did my internship there and then I got offered a full-time position after the harvest was over. And, and so I'm a little different in that regard. Most people that I know in the wine industry kind of start, you know, traveling the globe, bouncing around, uh, through all these different wine regions around the world. And, and I kind of did it. And then they settle into a place, you know, after a while. And I... You mean like doing internships and like working a, a harvest here and a harvest yeah, there yeah, kind of thing? Uh, yeah, right. Like they'll do year-round harvest, basically, you know, do up right. in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere and then in the Southern Hemisphere and just keep doing that to kind of build up, for one, a resume, but for two, just, just the, you know, the the fun of traveling and living abroad as well. But so I did not do that. I, I did kind of the opposite. I found a place that I liked and I stayed there for nine years and I never worked in another region or at another winery until I started this project. So what did you like about Radio Coteau? I'm, I'm looking at the website right now. It's beautiful. Initially, what lured me to them was their wine growing philosophies of uh, they were starting to embrace biodynamic principles and uh, organic principles. And so that was kind of the initial interest that I wanted Mm -hmm. to learn more about. And then after working there, I really just grew to appreciate um, really just how it's all encompassed and ev- there's a really granular attitude about this attention to detail in growing the vines, receiving the fruit in during harvest throughout the whole process. There's a really fine microscope being put on the entire process that I think I was able to take a lot away from and I grew to appreciate And, you know, there's a lot of other things too, just the winemaking style, just being more hands-off and really allowing the focus is, is, is the integrity of the fruit and allowing the, Mm. the character to shine through, whether it's the variety or the, you know, the site to really take center stage. And it's not really about manipulating flavors per se, uh, you know, with showing oak character or anything but really just allowing right. the, the site to come through and so, how do you do that you know and having full control over the entire process from year round you know from bud break to harvest and bottling um, i really just grew to appreciate and have taken that with me and were you would you say that you were more vineyard or seller uh, focused or oh, I was I was more seller focused for sure but uh, okay. in the beginning it was really just 
you know, as an intern, you're wherever you're needed. And so uh, that was kind of the nice thing about being there too, is it's a very small winery. Everybody has a lot of hats. And so I was able to see and learn a lot throughout the whole entire process. But eventually as the years went on, my focus really became managing the seller and doing production. Yeah. Nice. So that sort of brings us up almost to where you are now. And I, and I just wanted to say, I forget, I want to acknowledge you had a little hesitance about doing this podcast. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, sure. I, when I got into this, this, uh, what am, what am I trying to say here? When I'm, once I decided to break off on my own and do this and kind of uh, go on this adventure of American grapes, I had envisioned that maybe there would be a day where someone would want to interview me or I would need to be reported, <laughs> you know, for some sort of video segment or this podcast or something. And it brought up a lot of things about my past that I've been running away from for a long time. And, and that has been my stutter. So I do have a stutter and a this speech impediment that I've kind of let define me throughout the majority of my life. And it's, it, it's hard not to when you have a disability to, to not run away from it and to not let it control your, your lifestyle or your, 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 outlook on life and I guess like even your goals. And so I've, it's been something that I've been pretty nervous about. And so I think doing this podcast, I, I I was pretty nervous that my stutter is going to all of a sudden show up. You know, I think it probably has a little bit already, but that it's going to all of a sudden, you know, my nerves are going to take over. It's definitely nerve related and, Mm. Um, anyways, I don't know where I'm going with this, but basically, <laughs> well, I just wanted to acknowledge yeah, yeah, no, that, I, that I, I, I really appreciate you, you know, the, the, you know, I know it takes courage to both do this and to, to say that and acknowledge, I just want to acknowledge yeah, that I before think we move acknowledging on. It actually really helps. I think hiding away from it and pretending like it doesn't exist. And then all, because you're so scared that. Like, oh my gosh, what if I start stuttering? And then everyone, the whole world and the internet is going gonna, is gonna to know that I have this speech impediment. And and I think that's almost the worst part is you're hiding behind this illusion that you don't have it and you're trying to pretend that you don't have it and show people that, look, um, I, I don't sound different or whatever. And so I think just acknowledging it and talking about it, and I appreciate you bringing it up because I think it actually, it does help to put a face to it and, and, and be like, yes, I have this, this, this thing about me and it doesn't have to define me. And if you want to make fun of me, go ahead and then you're a jerk and that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I bet, I bet, I, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I bet you have found that people care less about it than you do. Yes, that's uh, very true. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I work it up in my head to where people are judging me probably much more than they actually are, for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a good insight to have, <laughs> for sure. You know, you get stuck in your head about it more than and uh, 
more than is actually true. And so I think I've just been running away from it and being more behind the scenes, you know, like being in a school play, that was like my worst fear ever, you know? So I had always elected to be the person that's, you know, Oh, I'll, I'll do like the construction for the backdrop and, you know, I'll be like the backstage guy and I'll build stuff <laughs> as long as it, yeah. people put me out there, you know, in front of people. <laughs> the, the behind the scenes person. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what wine production was is, yeah, I'm the behind the scenes guy. I'm making the wine, and you know I'm involved in the vineyard, but I'm not, I'm not like the face of the winery. And I, and so doing this project and breaking off on my own, that was a huge worry of mine. But I, I was tired of letting this fear like get in the way of what I actually want to do. And so this podcast too is kind of is a part of that. Is like I knew this was eventually going to happen, and. And I am ready to just <laughs> move on and, and face it and, and not let it get in the way of what I want to do anymore. Well, I think that's great because I think you have some really important things to say. <laughs> and I want to get into that. Yeah. Um, tell me about w- what you're doing now. You've got this project, uh, North American Press, and that's your, your sort of your own winery now mm-hmm. um and i mean tell me about that how the you know the origin of that obviously you you wanted to leave you wanted to do that what what formed the basis of the direction that you're taking it in like what were the things that you started learning that made you want you know let's talk about what it is and what you're doing with it and why why you're doing that so north american press is this project that i want to that utilizes uh, strictly native grapes or hybrid grapes and making wine from them. And so to really adhere to that, I'm sticking to this principle that any grape that I want to use needs to be at least 50% uh, of Native American origin. So the DNA... Uh, once you look at the DNA, you know, it's, I would like it to be at least 50% American grapes. Um, right. Because there are a lot of hybrids where they basically breed in just enough native grapes to sort of get cold hardiness or disease resistance, but it's majority vinifera still. Yeah. Right. I mean, even like these new varieties that are just coming out of UC Davis that like Andy Walker is doing. Um, I mean, it's great. They're, they're, Develop, they're developing these disease-resistant vines to Pierce's yeah. disease, which is becoming a, a huge problem in California. And so I think that's, I think that's the right move is to use inherent disease resistance to help solve the problem uh, rather than, you know, more and more technology and sprays and stuff. But, but even these varieties, yeah, they're, they, 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 they back breed back to, vinifera uh every time and so they're 97 percent vinifera which is fine i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but that's just not what really gets me excited like what you know i guess i just don't get it like why not explore if we're going to use these american grapes why not let them be themselves and instead of putting this judgment on them that they're they're 
they're inferior, why not just try and make the best wine from them and grow them in regions and really figure out the best place for these grapes and also maybe just change your attitude about your palate too, like expand your palate and try different flavors. And there's a lot of really exciting flavors that I have discovered in these grapes. And, you know, you kind of have to, have to let go of your European palate a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, once you can do that and I think it's really exciting what these grapes taste like. So here's a concept question for you. How do you know the difference between prejudice in your palate and just this ain't good? (laughs) Well, for me, I would say ain't good means like there's a flaw that I'm tasting. And, but besides that, I mean, right. It's all subjective. There's, you cannot say that this flavor is objectively bad. Unless, right? I mean, you there are these descriptors in vinifera, you know, cat pee, and <laughs> and you know, smoke, and all this other stuff that you know, I don't like the smell of cat pee. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's a it's 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 a it's a chemical compound that's in Sauv Blanc, and 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 I love Sauv Blanc, and. So if we can have that attitude towards vinifera, like where does this attitude towards native grapes come from that, you know, this term foxy is bad? Like, do most people know what foxy is? I didn't know what it even meant. And I was talking about it like, oh, native grapes, like they're foxy, like that's gross. What foxy? (laughs) I I have no idea. (laughs) Right. Why are you saying that? I don't know. Somebody told me that. Okay, you know, and so I kind of just have gone on this this mental journey of fig, of trying to is there any basis in reality for that these grapes are 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 not good on an objective level, and it doesn't seem like that's true to me, and so I yeah, would well, like to experiment like why, and I'm not saying all the wine made from native grapes is good but like why is it not good yeah you know i often say like is it the grapes fault or is it the winemaker's fault or how it was grown Mm. there's so many factors you can't just like say oh native grapes are are gross you know yeah and i've so anyways i've been going on this journey and i've sourced a lot of uh native and hybrid wines and i've been reading a lot of literature and i love these wines and i think their the flavor spectrum is amazing and now i'm at the point where i like i crave it and i and i've you know there's like a lot of things that are an acquired taste once you acquire a taste for it then you actually really really appreciate it and you will start to to want it more and so that's kind of where I'm at as I, as I really admire these, these flavors and I get excited to open these bottles and enjoy them. Yeah. That's funny. I was just thinking that some people who hear the term Foxy might be hearing it for the first time. And I think for the most part, if you haven't heard it in connection with hybrid grapes, 
it probably has a positive connotation like Jimi hendrix right. foxy lady you know like yeah, yeah. so you could just you know try to reclaim yeah. that yeah. positive yeah. association right. Right. with the grapes um so tell tell me uh, what are you doing i mean it sounds like you, you you're you're farming a baco noir vineyard it sounds like you have a nursery where you're cultivating some of these like maybe i don't know how big that nursery is and it sounds like you're foraging as well you're doing all this stuff is that right yeah i um you know to be honest i don't have like a real strict game plan of of (laughs) of how this is gonna unfold but i'm just jumping in with both feet and and yeah i have taken over farming for this Baco Noir vineyard that's in West County. It was actually planted in the 1960s. This Italian guy, uh, it's kind of a long story, but basically um, he was in the army and went AWOL and ended up in Sonoma County. And he planted this vineyard, you know, and at that time to be in the 1960s to plant hybrid grapes in California, you know, I don't know if anyone was doing that and right. so it's pretty amazing and these vines so since i've been taking over the farming of these vines that was really a big aha moment for me was in west county there's some in terms of by california standards the disease pressure is actually fairly high due to the fog that comes in right and these vines don't need to be sprayed at all with any fungicide anything ever not even sulfur nothing nothing so that was a big like wow Wow. like this has to be the future of viticulture or at least a part of the conversation you know um i'm not anti-vinifera but i'm very pro hybrid grapes and and that was a big moment for me is seeing that and that gave me the courage to really want to do this and and jump into this more and and start figuring out what other varieties are going to grow well in california and so there's a there's a baco vineyard and then i'm working with a few other growers in various different microclimates and avas to trial different grapes so like in dry creek there's a grower that i'm working with I think last year we did uh, like 12 or 14 different varieties. So we're doing like 10-ish vines of each variety. And then we'll watch those for a couple years and see what responds well, see, you know, come to an agreement with the grower, what they're liking, what I'm liking chemistry-wise, and then expand from there into like actual blocks of a, a select few of these varieties. And so that's happening in dry Creek. And then there's a grower in Susan Valley that I'm working with and in Mendocino, uh, as well. And I think we're doing like eight varieties up there. And so I'm just reaching out to, to growers that are interested in doing some trials. And then once these trials bear some fruit and, and we can see what does well, um, then I'm willing to, sign a contract and, you know, pick, uh, pick a couple and start making some wine. 
So how big are the trials? Like, are you, and what's your role? Are you providing, like, are you cultivating, like, is that what the nursery is where you're cultivating the hybrids and then giving? Um, no, that, that's kind of my, my long-term goal is to start getting into breeding myself. Uh-huh. And my long-term vision is to use California's own native grapes uh, yeah. Vitis Californica and Vitis Giordana and develop truly unique wine grapes uh, that have native California DNA in them. But yeah. that's, that's just that process takes literally decades. And so, yeah, um, yeah. that's going to be my my long term dream. Um, so but for now, it's really just sourcing these different varieties from nurseries that are providing quality material and then it depends on the grower uh, but usually what it means is we're top working the vineyard which means we're cutting the old vine off kind of like close to the scion where it's grafted onto the rootstock and then grafting these new varieties on and then oh gotcha and then we're gonna you know watch them for a couple of years Got it. Okay. I'm providing the budwood. You know, I'm trying to make it less risky for the grower, like as possible. So Got it. I'm willing. You know, these are varieties that they've never heard of for the most part. So, so I'm willing to. I'll pay for the budwood. I'll pay for the grafting, um, and then got it. It's your land, and you know, so we'll just watch them and see what happens. Right. I like, I, oh. I don't own a vineyard, so I'm at the mercy, you know, of also what, what the right. growers is, is comfortable with. And so pulling out their vines isn't really, doesn't sound very good because then they're going to have a bunch of unknown rootstock in their vineyard. That they're going to have to deal with if this doesn't, you know, work out. Right. <laughs> if they hate, the wine or whatever once it's right um well that's cool you're kind of putting your money where your mouth is in that sense taking on the financial burden of of making that transition and then you're you're willing to be on the back end uh to take the grapes if if necessary as well it sounds like yeah i'm willing to do what it takes for now to kind of get this underway it's great so why do you care about these things? Like what got you, like, why do you think it's important that we, is it the, is it that disease resistance? Is it, is it the sense of, you know, if we're actually going to talk about terroir, we need to, you know, be talking about grapes that come from this continent. Um, you yeah, know, what... it's, it's a little bit of everything, but my, my evolution through this journey kind of, really just started with my interest in just native plants in general, like through foraging mm. and this awakening that I've gone through and realizing that like there's food here that, right. that is, that doesn't come from Europe and, and there's these native plants here that have evolved to grow here. And if we want to talk about like a sense of place, Right. I think it should be more than just what European plants can we grow here? And then what do yep. they, what do those European plants taste like or Asian plants or whatever? Well, what do these foreign plants taste like when you grow them in North America? Like 
<laughs> I think that's fine, but I just get really excited about about what does California actually taste like or wherever mm. you live in North America. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm interested in California just because that's where I live. You know, there are native yeah. grapes throughout all of North America and native plants throughout all of North America. And so I just am really intrigued about this idea of preserving and, and conserving and highlighting and bringing attention to what actually has evolved to grow in these areas. Like when I travel, I mean, I haven't, I've, kids now and COVID. So traveling internationally, you know, hasn't really been uh, <laughs> on my schedule for a while, but like when I travel internationally, you know, let's say I'm going to New Zealand. Like, yeah, I can eat pizza in New Zealand, but uh, like, I want to taste what actually grows there. And right. I don't want to travel around the world and just, and just, eat what I normally eat when I am at home. I want to learn about the native cultures that are from that region and what plants and animals they're consuming and actually taste what that region truly tastes like. And so it's just the, like that idea and bringing it here where I live in California and trying to bring awareness to just native plants in general, but my my background and you know just more happens to be wine related and so how can i apply that idea to wine and not just have a sense of place be what foreign grapes taste like when they're grown in california but you know what do like native american grapes taste like when grown in north america and then combine that with the realization that these vines most likely do not need to be sprayed in California because it is a drier region um, really kind of just set me on this path to want to figure it out and get into it and you know I don't know what the end game is going to be but I just want to I just want to do it <laughs> yeah well I mean you have multiple disease resistances you don't have to spray but then also you can just they can grow on their own roots without worrying about phylloxera, a lot of them. And so then it seems an even truer expression of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of discussion now about rootstock and, you know, people obviously are starting to prize own rooted vines. Mm -hmm. But when they say own rooted, they're usually talking about European vinifera that they've planted in sandy soil. So it, right. it doesn't have to worry so much about phylloxera. Mm -hmm. But these vines evolved here so they're actually you can plant them in clay and they'll do fine uh, on their own roots yeah that's a good yeah i mean there's the for example but, the the baco vineyard i'm farming actually likes heavier soils and so there yeah. is that's another reason for this is that i didn't really talk about is yeah it's just to preserve diversity within the genetic makeup of grapes and there yeah. are attributes uh, right like not necessarily even disease resistance but just attributes among this wide spectrum I and mean, there's over you know i don't know 30 some odd native species to north america right. and they're all going to have a different uh qualities that are worth 
preserving and using when we're talking about breeding new great material where, you know, I, I think it's just not really appreciated very much. And I think preserving that biodiversity and of the DNA is, is worth pursuing. You know, it, it makes me think what we need is a, a, a bunch of monks who can be left alone for like a thousand years in Northern California. And we'd end up with the new Vitus Californica that was like Pinot Noir. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean. That's what the role that you see yourself in a bit. A bit, yeah. Like, yeah, I think, totally. I think, you know, Vitus vinifera comes from a wild European grape, Vitus sylvestris. And vinifera, my understanding, does not grow in the wild. And so I think people have this like overly romantic idea that like once upon a time, thousands of years ago, you know, they were like walking into the forest and they just like plucked Cabernet and Chardonnay out of the forest. <laughs> and then like there's, and it's this, and it's this magical wine grape, you know, but the reality is, is that it's a domesticated uh, form of the wild grape Vitus sylvestris and even these noble grapes of Europe have been bred through traditional methods over you know thousands of years right so yeah we're, we're just like, at the beginning of that yeah exactly you know yeah. Yeah. wine grapes of North America like I think we're being a little a little hard on them you know, we haven't been <laughs> yeah. on this journey of of breeding and developing wine grapes from them for nearly as long, you know, right. for a fraction of the time. So let's, but as instead of just dismissing them completely, let's go on that journey. Let's let's figure yeah. it out. Let's let's actually find these beautiful and amazing wines from North America using our own grapes. Yeah, and like you said, with I mean, the potential exists for even more. I mean, there's. It seems like there's more potential considering the diversity of grapes that we have here. You know, the thirty different versus. You know, there's the one from Europe, and we have like thirty. Um, yeah, I would. I would. I would assume that that's true. Yeah. At least you know something to work with. At least right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how? How big is that Baco Noir vineyard? Oh, it's you... very tiny. It's uh, it's only a half an acre. Okay. So, which is yeah, which is fine by me because you know, right. I'm, I'm kind of just getting started and I don't really want to get in over my head. So um, I've never worked with this vineyard. I've never worked with this varietal. I've never worked with a, a hybrid. And so starting small feels very warm and cozy to me. And so I don't really get get in over my head. Um, so, but the, but the plan is to yeah uh, work with this vineyard and try and and make the best wines from it. And you know I think uh, the answer to a lot of this hybrid stuff is blending too. So like mm. riparia based hybrids like Baco have a lot of acidity. And that can, that's kind of 
the hardest part with working with riparia based hybrids like Baku is, is how do you handle that acidity? And I think an obvious answer is creating field blends. So that's what I'm doing right now in this small vineyard is, is there some misses and there's some room to interplant some other stuff. So, but then okay. other than using Viognier or, or a vinifera, finding these more aromatic, uh, phenolic whites that maybe are a little flabbier to balance out that acid and inner planet mm. vineyard and kind of really create a, a unique blend. And then the fact that it's only half acre, you know, I can, it's manageable for me right now. Yeah. So how are you surviving? I mean, I know starting, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you and starting out small with a small winery project. Um, but it's kind of hard to pay yourself a salary. Do you, do you have a second job? I, we decided as a family that it was important that I, that I take this journey and I, and I do this. So we went from a two income household to a one income household and yeah, no, it hasn't been easy. Like I don't have angel investors. Um, we're, <laughs> we're pulling into our savings. I took out a, a loan against our house. Um, yeah, it's kind of risky business. Um, yeah. I'm, but I'm, for the yeah. moment, we're making it work. And, and we're very fortunate that, that we're able to, to for now, make ends meet um, off my wife's income. And so that's the plan for the foreseeable future um, until if this project starts growing and gaining more interest um then yeah hopefully hopefully down yeah, the road no. i'll actually be able to pay myself back but for now <laughs> right yeah no i'm right there with you in addition to you know taking these risks though you're still giving back i love that both of the the drinks the beverages that you've produced because one is i mean they're both wines but one is a cider <laughs> slash wine mm-hmm. um you're giving back with the with the profits from those. Can you talk a little bit about that? What you're doing with with the uh, the rebel and what was the other one? Wild card. The wild card, yeah, wild card. Um, yeah, I think it's important to give back. I mean, yeah, that's just like a a blanket statement, but I never <laughs> really felt like I was in a position to be able to give back on a level that I've wanted to. And so when starting this company, I knew from the beginning that that was always going to be an integrated part of the business. And if it can't be a part of the business, then then the business shouldn't be, I guess. And so, I think in terms of bringing awareness to American grapes and this disease resistance, there's this whole environmental aspect that's tied into that. And so I'm trying to bring awareness to other things about environmentalism here, just locally where these grapes are grown that I think is important. And so I'm using the proceeds from the wines um, to give back to certain organizations. So every bottle will 
be dedicated to a different organization. So for example, the Baco goes 10% of the profits of that wine go back to the Laguna de Santa Rosa Foundation, and they're doing amazing work revitalizing the wetlands, the Laguna wetlands uh, that's kind of between Santa Rosa and Sebastopol and doing a lot of outreach and education with with kids. And that's, you know, we're farming. We're There's this whole wine agricultural region and the runoff from all this farming goes into the wetlands. And yeah. I think that's an important conversation that needs to be had in the agricultural community. You know, people think kind of, I get the sense that some growers have this idea that like the world ends on their property boundary yeah, and that's just not true. And so I think a lot of the work that they're doing is important and should have some more attention brought to it. Yeah. So, so they're, they're, I'm working with them. Their logos on the back. There's a little snippet about, about the work that they're doing. And then the wild card, the apples for that cider, they're heirloom Gravenstein apples that are dry farmed on the Hallberg butterfly gardens. And they actually have the oldest butterfly gardens in the United States. And it's this amazing little nonprofit that is right in the middle of Russian River Valley um, here in Sonoma County. And they're doing really great work trying to bring awareness to bio diversity and native plants and trying to conserve a habitat for these butterflies. And so I just think that's like an amazing um, organization that really has, doesn't have very much notoriety. I mean, I know people that live here that don't even know that this place even exists and it's just down the street. And so just trying to help them out and bring some awareness to what they're doing, I think is important. Yeah, that's great. And so that's a cider. So you're making cider with those apples that they're dry farming and around that. But you're also foraging some wild grapes, right? Yeah. You know, going back to the the native plant thing. So I just, if I want to make a cider, it's important to me that it somehow ties into native California or just this wild um, region that exists around us. And so I decided a way to do that to kind of showcase that in this bottle would be to co-ferment these apples with wild foraged grapes. And so I literally just, I drive around (laughs) (laughs) um, with lugs in the back of my truck and I go hiking on some tributaries to the Russian river and along the Russian river and forage for grapes for, it's usually like about a week. Um, just as I can fit it in throughout, you know, a little, a couple hours every day. And then just really trying to capture this wild area that exists amongst all these cultivated wine grapes and capturing that in a bottle. Like there's this history of Sonoma County that actually doesn't have to do with wine. And before there were grapes, there were apples. And before there were apples, there was wild California. And so how do you create a beverage unique to Sonoma County that doesn't have any wine grapes in it? Yeah. So I think that's kind of what I was trying to do with that. So how, what quantities of apples versus grapes and total quantities are you making? Luckily the, uh, a lot of the grapes seem to be 
Tentuya grapes, meaning like the the oh, yeah. flesh the is, red. is pretty darkly tinted along with the skin. Mm-hmm. So phenolically, aromatically, color-wise, acid-wise, a little bit goes a long way. So right, really right. like 10% is wild grapes. And then gotcha. are the are the apples. So I really don't yeah. mean that much. I'm not like going out there and you know right taking all the grapes but What's that being said the long i can't do that forever if i want to grow the cider right. um, and expand the production which is the goal there's there's quite a few trees at the butterfly gardens and so eventually if i can use more of them i'm going to need to get my point across in an alternative manner and so the plan is to actually start farming native california grapes and just harvest right. them. And it sounds like that exercise uh, is probably good exercise of going out a couple hours a day. It sounds like it's that would be a lot of fun. I mean, I, I'm just envisioning, yes, it would be work. And yes, you got to think about finding these things and bring them in to make to make the wine. But uh, oh, it yeah. sounds like a, be- a beautiful pastime as well. <laughs> like, yeah, um, it's a great excuse to like get out of the winery and, and get out of the house and and go take a break and be out in nature for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Fall in the Russian river Valley and, right. you know, wandering yeah. through the woods. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's one thing I just really enjoy about foraging in general. I mean, if I'm not foraging for grapes, it's, it's mushrooms or acorns or bay nuts or whatever else. And yeah, I, I think any excuse to get outside and get in touch with, nature is time well spent i noticed that you forage mushrooms and i was going to ask you about that or where did you get your mycological (laughs) uh really just like um through through books and networking with people yeah Um, you kind of start small and work your way up you know you start with the ones that are real obvious that are kind of hard to not get right Right. and then you just get those like chantrell for example or it's pretty hard to, to mess that one up, I think. And so if you know you can, once you see them, then you really just start to develop an eye for it. And it's less about looking at the book and it just, and then it just becomes using your memory and your, what you've learned from actually finding them to be right, able like to the, identify the context them. of them. Right. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. You know, they, I, they look different depending on the stage of what they're growing you know, and mm. so a mushroom has lots of different stages and looks very differently and shows itself differently throughout its life cycle. And so once you become aware of that and then you can see it firsthand, then you just start kind of going off of your own experience. But at first, it's just if you can identify chanterelles and then you just you see another mushroom, then you just don't pick it. And then you just get the ones that you're comfortable with. But then eventually you'll start that'll, you know, become one or two or three or four different types and then eventually in your area you'll just know most of the mushrooms that are edible that just grow in your area yeah yeah and you mentioned sort of getting assistance from other people it it seems like and and i'm taking this somewhere it's not just going off on a tangent about mushrooms but mushrooms especially seem to be a field of knowledge that continues to be this handed down 
like you almost have to have a guide in a way to to do it. I mean, it's a little easier now with the internet and but even that like I was referencing the the context really matters, like knowing the kind of trees, the setting that you would find that kind of mushroom because they all decompose different things. Um and it, it feels like one of those things you can do a lot of work and there are some obvious ones. You can do a lot of studying and there are obvious ones, but then some of the more nuanced ones, it's almost like they're, you know, some grandparent had to teach that person and that person had to teach you kind of thing. And I, I noticed that you are in to a lot of knowledge like that, both with native plants. I mean, it seems like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, I, I saw your reading list, which I'm, I now am looking at the books because my, my wife is a librarian. And so I took um a screenshot of your or i showed her your instagram post with all the books that you were reading and she basically picked them all up for me and i now have them on my nice. desk to read um but can you talk a little bit about you know that kind of knowledge in, in both in the plants and and what what you're doing with that yeah i mean i think it's just for the moment it's really just an interest but it stems from this interest in native plants as well which is really where it started from and just starting foraging and learning about these plants that existed here and realizing that there is this wisdom that has existed from native cultures here as as well and throughout all of north america and there is this knowledge that has been handed down from generation to generation verbally on how to live here and I think that that knowledge is at risk of being lost. And to me, like that just makes me really sad for one. Yeah. But for two, I, I think it's important that we carry that on and, and learn from it and not just be so rigid in our colonial way of thinking, but let's, let's learn from the people that, have existed here for millennia and they have a lot of um, a lot of great wisdom that we can learn from uh like just something that comes to mind is this whole wildfire season you know now i just read this article yesterday that uh, firefighters are getting in touch in touch with indigenous elders and learning how to do controlled burns in california to better manage the forests and like that kind of stuff, I think it's just like so inspiring. Yeah. You know, like instead of just pretending like, I don't know how to say this, but like Western society has all the answers, but actually looking back and using the wisdom of the indigenous peoples throughout the world, really, but just because I live in California, um, looking at the wisdom that has existed in California and how they managed their resources they are the water protectors and 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 how they lived here sustainably for a very long time and i think we could learn a lot from them about how to manage even in this day and age how to manage our resources um and how to how to how can we incorporate that into our farming and so it's really at the moment, it's just an interest of something that I'm listening to and absorbing, but I would like very much to learn how to incorporate some sort of knowledge into my farming um, and growing these wines. Yeah, it seems like the barrier to 
a lot of this knowledge is just maybe not even prejudice, maybe in some case prejudice, but just uh, hubris. hubris. Yeah. And maybe just like a, a very narrow perspective. Like we, you know, I think about the kind of foods that you get in a grocery store versus what what is edible in the world around us. And there's, you know, we're eating this very narrow slice of the spectrum. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, and, and a lot of that is insecure. You know, a lot of that requires a lot of water, a lot of it has to be trucked in from places when it's out of season and knowing this having this knowledge expands our ability to just have a more local diverse secure food network basically and and survive and especially as things change and get hotter and and uh, we have to deal with improving what we're doing uh, and that that are creating those conditions yeah no i totally agree i mean there's you know again just kind of there's our plants that have evolved to be here and they shouldn't need to have the resources that we use to manage them, you know, whether it's water, you know, fungicides or whatever yeah. it is, really maybe simplify things and yeah, expand your palate a little bit and try something new that ironically is actually from here. And I think it just gets back to that kind of European settler mentality it's like when settlers came here you know it's like they thought that north america was barren landscape and just needed to be planted with all the stuff that they were used to you know i guess you know and they wanted things to taste the way that they did back home and yeah i guess i am saying let's challenge that let's let go of that well what can you can you what are your some of your favorite flavors in both in um grapes that you that are hybrid grapes that you've experienced as well as just some of the local flora that you've started eating what what are some of the favorite things that maybe other people could reach out and try to find well i guess i'll start with the foraging since that's kind of more about what we're talking about and end with the wine so uh, like in my backyard i i'm very particular about only growing native California plants. So the really fun thing is about that is I just kind of go out there and chew on them all and, and, <laughs> and have developed kind of my own uh, flavors that I like to use in my cooking. So one that comes to mind that I, that I like is called Yampa and it, it's in the carrot family, I believe. And when it goes to seed, so I collect the seeds. I, I save some seeds for for replanting, and then the rest I dry and I put in like this spice blend. That's kind of a mm. uniquely native California spice blend. And the yampa has this really, even though it's in the carrot family, it kind of has that earthiness, but it also has this really intense like citrus note that mm. I've never really picked up in. A seed like that before it's kind of um like it kind of has this anise note you know but that's more familiar when you're talking about fennel seed and anise seed um mm -hmm. and so that's one or like uh sagebrush sagebrush is really amazing it has this it's it's not actually i don't believe it's actually a a true sage at least it certainly doesn't look like it um but it had it does have a saginess to it but it also has this really intense like menthol character and so that's another one that i like to use and mm. then 
in terms of the wines, um, the aromatics of the native grapes, I think, are particularly intriguing. Um, my wife and I kind of talk about them a lot. And I think there's, like in some of the whites, I get this really intense, like, uh, almost like sweet tart like candy note on the nose, even though it, mm. it's completely dry. Like there's nothing sweet about the wine at all, but just the aromatics have this really like tropical um, flavor that is really intense and we are enjoying. And then in the reds, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much out there to say, but like, I guess I'll just talk about the Baco. Um the Baco is kind of this interesting combination. It has like this blueberry note of Cab Franc, but then combined with like the smokiness of a Syrah. Um, and, but then this really intense like verb of acidity that you would get from a Barbera. And while mm. those are maybe flavors that you can get in a vinifera grape, like the combination of all of those together, I think is definitely more specific to native wine grapes, especially when you're talking about like combining that, that depth of flavor with this really intense acidity. Usually it's kind of one or the other. Gotcha. Yeah. That sounds great. I mean, I think it's probably kind of impressive for some people to hear uh, that you're just growing own rooted vines in within under the fog line without sprays <laughs> um and I, I mean i think it's exciting to see what the potential could be so i'm i'm excited to 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 see what develops with what you're doing really yeah. um, exciting things that happen thank you very much yeah i appreciate your, your yeah no is that did i did i should i should we cover anything else um I don't know. There's probably a lot to talk about, but I think... The yeah, I know. I feel like I have tons more questions, but I didn't want to... <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been great to talk to you. I really yeah, appreciate I it. I really, really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. If you want to find out more or get in touch with Matt or buy his unique and delicious wine and cider, please visit northamericanpress.wine. Or check out his Instagram, vitus underscore Californica. If you value this podcast and would like to support it, it's as easy and delicious as buying a bottle of Centralis wine. Centralis is my winery, and I started it to promote people like Matt, as well as regenerative organic agriculture, because I believe it is one of the most powerful solutions to some of the most important problems we are facing today. And since Centralis is the sponsor for this podcast, buying a bottle helps to promote people like Matt, who are also doing amazing work and making our planet cleaner and more delicious. You can buy Centralis wine at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. I hope you check out Matt's website and get some of his wine and check out his beautiful Instagram as well. Northamericanpress.wine or at vitus underscore Californica. Thanks for listening.